following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, please turn to Psalm 127. I know I just threw about half of you off there, didn't I? You've got Genesis on speed dial now. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Not a little bit different, completely different. I'll explain in a moment. Psalm 127 is basically in the middle. So if you turn there, you should get it pretty quickly. It's only five verses long, so we're going to read these five together, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. The psalmist says, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you now and we just ask for your spirit to take these words, just these five verses of this one song, and use them to challenge us this morning. Um, So easy for us to think that we can do anything, really, on our own power. But your word is consistent, and that is that we are a people who are totally dependent on you. And so, Father, this morning, even though we all know this, the fact of the matter is, is I think probably all of us struggle with believing that and living that way on a regular basis. And so I ask that you will take your words and convict us and challenge us and change us so that we will be people who are truly, truly dependent on you in everything. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's occurred to me over the years that there are really only two types of jobs in the world. There's the kind of job that you can uh, walk away from on a Friday afternoon or when you're going on vacation or if you're sick or something like that, and you don't have to worry about anything. Okay? You don't have to think about it, nothing left undone. There's nothing that you have to be responsible for making sure it gets done while you're gone, et cetera, et cetera. You can just go. And then there's the jobs where you can't, okay, where there's a lot of responsibility that's on you to do this or that, and you can never really get away from it regardless of how hard you try. Um, I remember back in 2002 when I started working for HSBC, I started as a credit card collector, which, of course, I've never really talked about much with you for good reason. But um, (laughs) when I was in that position, the entire scope of my responsibility involved me coming in at my start time, then sitting at that cubicle for eight hours, talking to wonderful, pleasant people all that time, and then leaving at the end. That was all I had to accomplish, okay? When I left at the end of the night, there was nothing that went with me other than frustration about the people I had talked with. There was no sense of responsibility. If I was sick and couldn't come in 
for whatever reason, one day, all I had to do was pick up the phone, call, say I'm not coming in, roll back over and go to bed. That was it. If I was going on vacation, there was nothing I had to get ready for before I left. There was nothing waiting for me when I came back. That's because there were dozens, or if not hundreds, of other people who came and did the exact same thing that I did on a daily and nightly basis, and that was just walk in, sit down at a cubicle, make phone calls, and then go home. It was a job with absolutely no responsibilities whatsoever, and as such, I could just walk away from it with nothing. I I imagine that probably most entry-level positions are like that, regardless of your type of work. By the time I had uh, advanced a little bit in the company in 2006 when we moved to Chicago, I became a compliance officer with Consumer and Mortgage Lending Policy and Compliance. And though I wasn't very high up on the totem pole, um, I had a lot more weight and responsibilities on me so that if I called in sick one day, it wasn't really to my benefit because I could never rest knowing that while I was gone, stuff was piling up on my desk and things that were supposed to get done weren't getting done. Or if I went on vacation, it was hardly a vacation because the entire week beforehand, I had to spend getting ready to go and passing off certain responsibilities to various people, trying to get them up to speed on my project so that they could handle the critical parts and then everything else just had to wait till I got back so I could do it. So all I was really given was the privilege of not coming in for a week. I still had the same amount of work to do regardless of whether I was there or not. Again, it's the kind of job that you can't really walk away from. You guys probably know what I'm talking about because you're in those kinds of jobs. Well, similarly, being a pastor is very much the latter, not the former. Uh, if you're gone or something happens... It's not like you just walk away from it and you have nothing to do. Uh, You still have all the same things to do. You just have less time to do them. And Frank and Ed and Jordan are always so faithful to help in all these things. And particularly if I'm going on vacation, I can pass stuff off and they handle it for me very well and it's great. But if something comes up unexpectedly, it's a little more difficult. So last Sunday afternoon, after I left here, I started not feeling so hot. And by Sunday night, I was like, dog sick, you know, I was patient first, I had 103 fever, it was, I was miserable, all day Monday I'm worshiping before the porcelain throne, all day Tuesday I'm trying to see if that old saying about coughing up a lung is actually possible, it is not, there you go, just so you know, I gave it a good, good try, Um, I learned one thing through all of this, and that is there's absolutely nothing on television in the daytime, and what is on television is all for losers, I don't know why... How they know their markets so well, but I was listening as I'm laying in bed, like curled up, like all these, like, go sue this person or come get your degree online here so you can get a job making 25000 a year. That was a real commercial, by the way. Um, I was pretty, uh, pretty sick, and now Jamie's got it too. I, I say that now, I'm, I'm okay. If I shook your hand this morning, you don't have to worry about anything. I'm, I've been on antibiotics for five days, and so I'm fine. The only thing I have now is a cough. And uh, which I've already warned Matt to try to turn me down real quick. And I got cough drops already at, ready. I got water over here. I'm hoping to be good. Um, basically, I'm telling you this because I didn't have time to work this week. Because I didn't start getting better until really Thursday afternoon. And by the time Thursday afternoon came around and I finally sat down at my desk to really try to look at something for today, I'm like, Genesis is not happening this week. And so if you will allow me, and even if you won't, I'm still going to do it. I'm going to go back... I'm going to go back to a sermon that I preached a long, long time ago, not here. I don't think I've ever preached this here. But a sermon I preached a long, long time ago from Psalm 127 that the Lord has always had very near and dear to my heart here. Uh, 
Psalm 127 is what we would refer to as a wisdom psalm. In other words, it's, it's not uh, a regular song that's lamenting something or praising something as you might think of with most of the other psalms. This particular song is designed to teach you something. And so the question as we come to the text is we're like, well, what is it trying to teach us? Well, the focus of this particular song is on dependence on the Lord. Which for me, the kind of person I am, is a very important concept. Because I struggle, and, I, and I don't, I'm not just making this up, for the, trying to make it sound better for the sermon. I really, really, really struggle with taking help from others. So even when I'm sick, okay, I don't like pick up the phone and I'm like, hey, Frank, Ed, guys, I need, I need you to do this or that. Like they call and they ask and they're like persistent about it because they know my sin, okay. I have a hard time accepting help from other people. I, I'm a very independent person and I always have been. I'm the kind of person that if you want to give me something to do, that's great. Give me the responsibility. Give me the authority it takes to get it done. And I'll get it done to the best of my ability, and if I need your help, I'll ask. Otherwise, leave me alone. That's just kind of my, my personality in life. And yet we come here, and we see in the psalm that that is totally, totally wrong. That we're supposed to be living our lives understanding that in everything, in everything, we are living our life in complete dependence on the Lord. And that's what the psalm is saying. And it lays it out for us, I think, in a pretty a pretty typical Hebrew way. It begins with some basic teaching or exhortations about dependence on the Lord. And then it gives us an illustration of dependence on the Lord. And then finally we can draw three applications of what that dependence on the Lord means for us. And so we're going to follow that model this morning here in the text just to see what the Lord wants us to understand about how we should view ourselves in relation to him. And so let's start with this exhortation concerning dependence here in verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And the writer is setting up for us here two scenarios to act as a springboard for the rest of the psalm. You see them here. He mentions building a house and guarding the city. And both of those are very common aspects of daily life, you know, just like it is really for us as well. If we have people building houses for us all the time, just like they did, we have a military, someone to guard us and protect us just like they they did. These are very common parts of everyday life. And you know what? While I can't uh, guarantee this, I'm pretty sure that he didn't just pick any random person off the street to do these two things. I mean, just take it for yourself for a moment. If you were going to be building a house, who would you rather call me with my mad table saw skills or someone who actually knows what they're doing? Okay, yes, that's exactly what they would have done as well. They would have actually got someone who was skilled at building a house. And I'm also pretty sure that for guarding the city, they didn't pick just any soldier. They probably picked the one with the best eyesight, the one who could see the farthest so that they had the best possible protection for them up on the city wall. Now, what's my point with that? My point is that what you have described for us here in verse 1 are two common everyday activities most likely being carried out by people who were highly skilled in doing them. And yet, notice what the psalm says about these activities. That unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That unless the Lord watches over the city, 
The watchman stays awake in vain. You see it actually three times in these two verses. And the word vain here just means emptiness. Worthless in the sense that it has no value. That it's completely and utterly pointless. It can't be done. You can build any house you want. You can use the finest materials, the latest methods, the the most skilled craftsmen. But if the Lord isn't in it, it comes to nothing. You can guard the city, have the most guards who can see the farthest, put in all the warnings and safeguards you want. But if the Lord isn't guarding your city, it's, it's all for nothing. You try to think about this in our own daily life, because I know that these things sometimes are hard for us to imagine, but, but let's just take a normal everyday activity for us, like driving to work in the morning or driving to the store or somewhere with the kids. You think, okay, well, that's no big deal, right? I, I can do all those things. I'm a safe driver. I wear my seatbelt. I, I drive defensively or offensively, whatever it might be for you. I, I can do this. But you realize here that if the Lord doesn't keep you safe, you're going to die on the road. The Lord doesn't drive the car. You're driving it in vain. Do you, do you kind of see what's being said here? The same concept? This is exactly what the psalmist is saying here in verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. That apart from God's direct involvement in any and every task of life, nothing can be accomplished. That he upholds and sustains everything we do. And having laid that foundation in verse 1, in verse 2, he begins to contrast two completely different models of getting things done. And in the process, he weaves into this verse the necessity and blessedness of what, depending on the Lord, really looks like. He says in verse 2 that it's vain that you rise up early, go to late rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And in the first part of that verse, you see the picture of a man who gets up early every morning... He works hard all day long. He works late into the night. He goes to bed late. He is eating the bread of anxious toil. He he feels like everything's on him to get it done, that he can't do it apart from his own hard labor. This is his diet. This is his life. And we read this and we're like, yeah, work can be like that sometimes. Well, don't just think about work. Yeah, it applies to work because many of us in here work really, really hard at what we do. We work long hours. We're gone sometimes at night, particularly for those of you who are in the uh, the Navy. You're gone. You're working hard. All these things can be very, very difficult. And while some of that is obviously commendable, there's an aspect here in which something's wrong. Something isn't right about what this guy's doing because he's doing it in the belief that everything is dependent on him. He's eating this bread of anxious toil, and so work certainly applies, but but it can apply to any area of life. What about your finances? You ever think about that? I, I can't, I couldn't even begin to number all the people that I have heard, particularly over the past four or five years, who have talked about how worried they are about the economy, about their own personal financial situation. And so they work and they strive and they worry and they're saving and they're planning and they're trying to figure out how they can get more money for this or for that. And all that can be good, right? I'm not saying that that's wrong. But I wonder if they realize that all that stuff can be gone in a moment, no matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter. The richest person in the world can die tomorrow. Their money does them no good. Or it could all be taken away. The point is simply that these things are not on us. 
Whatever aspect of life you want to plug in here, you'll find that verse 2 applies to anything that you can add. The psalmist says that all our work and worry is in vain. It's pointless. It's worthless to worry about these things. And notice why it's pointless to worry about them. It's because God gives to his beloved what? Sleep. That's what he gives. And all your anxious toil and all your work and all your long hours, here's the gift God gives you. It's sleep. That's why it's worthless. In other words, God is capable of taking care of all those things, even without you. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help in any of these things that I worry and work about. He doesn't need us, but he uses us. And we should work hard. We should build houses. We should watch walls. The point here isn't to say that there's no value in doing these things in some general sense. Just go home, stop building houses, go live out in the field, you're fine. That's not the point. The point is simply to remind us that if God isn't in them, then all our work and worry will be in vain. And if he is in them, conversely, then guess what? They succeed. It's just that simple. It all comes back to him. It's kind of like the old saying that you're invincible until God's done with you. Have you ever heard someone say that before? Well, I don't know how many times I've quoted that to myself on airplanes. I hate flying. Hate it. And people ask me why I hate it so much, and I don't know why I hate it so much. Why does anyone hate anything, like spiders or snakes? I showed that picture last week, and someone that I respected greatly cringed. And I thought, if this man's man cringed when I showed a picture of a snake or the rat, I don't know which one he was afraid of, then something's, something's wrong here, okay? I don't know why people fear these things. But here I'll be sitting on a plane, and I'm like, okay, you know what? I've got to push aside this emotional response and think logically. If God isn't done with me, then nothing can happen to me here, right? I'm, I'm, I am as secure as secure can be, and if he's done with me, it doesn't matter if I'm on a plane, in a car, brushing my teeth, whatever it is, I'm toast. That's all that's left. And I try to encourage myself with these things. Well, In a similar way, here we're seeing that whether or not we're involved, everything comes back to God. It's dependent on Him. If He doesn't uphold me right now, right this very second, then I'm dead. If He doesn't uphold my family right this very moment, our family's destroyed. If He doesn't uphold our finances right this very moment, we're in bankruptcy. If He doesn't uphold every detail of our life constantly, consistently, I have nothing despite all my work, despite all my effort. I'm completely, totally dependent on him. God doesn't give us worry. He doesn't give us anxious bread. What does he give us? Sleep. He gives us the ability to rest in him and be dependent on him for every single thing we need. That's the exhortation you see here concerning dependence. Now, beginning in verse 3 then, he transitions to an illustration of dependence. (coughs) Excuse me. The text says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. These verses often confuse people because they don't understand the flow of what this psalm is doing them. They, they, they read the first two verses and then they jump to verse 3 and they're like, this doesn't fit. This, this seems like out of place. Like These should be two different psalms altogether. Well, actually it fits quite nicely 
Because what you see here is a practical illustration of the truth on dependence that we saw up in verses 1 and 2. Verse 3 begins with a very, very simple concept that children are from the Lord. Okay, you see that? You get it? That's, that's where they're from. And not to belabor the obvious, but this serves as a really good example of what I was talking about a few moments ago about how that in all these comments that the psalmist is making here, he's not saying that we shouldn't be involved in these things, right? Because clearly the point of verses 1 and 2 wasn't to discourage us from building houses or watching cities or working hard. Any more than verse 3 is discouraging us from pursuing all the normal methods for having children, right? You got that? You understand what I'm saying there? In other words... You're not supposed to read verse 3 and go, okay, children from the Lord, dear Lord, please make a child appear tomorrow morning in our house in Jesus' name, amen. And then you're waking up the next day wondering, where's the kid? Children are from the Lord. All right, well, the Lord may make a child in your bedroom, but not that way. That's just, I'm just saying, you still have to be involved in the process. God uses that, right? That's that's the point. Verse 3 is indicating to us that a child isn't merely the biological product of sex. As in, you know, take the ingredients, put them together, here you go. It's not all it is. A child is a gift from God. Every child is. They're his reward to us. We're not the ultimate cause of our children's birth, even though we're involved in the process. Even in this most basic and common necessity of life on earth, we're dependent on the Lord, through and through. And all of the benefits then you see here in verses 4 and 5 that flow from these children are actually equally dependent on God as well. That's what these two verses are explaining here. He presents two scenarios. First, he likens children to arrows in the hand of a warrior. And you really have to be able to step back in your mind and try to put yourself in the place of an Israelite, someone who was hearing this for the first time, who was singing this song on their way up to Jerusalem. This is one of the Psalm of Ascents. And, and, and understand what life was like in that culture. You remember, that there's no police department. Even though you live in a community, you are very much self-sufficient in many, many respects. And your personal, physical security is one of them because your closest neighbor could be miles and hills and valleys away. And so if in the middle of the night someone's going to break in and attack you, rob you, kill you, your defense is up to you. And so men with large families, particularly men who had many sons, were seen as blessed by the Lord for many reasons, this being one of them. They're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Hey, don't mess with Mr. Jacob and his 12 boys over here. (laughs) You go in that house, you're going to be in trouble. They've got a lot of people in there to defend them. This is one of the blessings you see here in in the text. A second one is mentioned. It's judicial security. He talks in verse 5 about how this man will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The city gate is kind of like city hall and the local courts and Starbucks all mixed together. All right, It's where business is done. It's where, where judgment is handed out. And so if you want, to, dis, if you want to, to get someone in trouble, you want to have something bad happen to them, you want to take advantage of someone in this kind of way, this is where you do it. Well, blessed is the man whose children won't let that happen, who has people there to back him up and protect him, even in this situation. Now, understand that to us, these two blessings that he highlights here in these verses, they might seem odd 
or just like we have a hard time connecting with them because we don't live in this kind of environment. But for the original readers, this is huge. Oh man, I wish I was blessed to have all these children, my quiver full of them, so that I could experience this kind of safety and security. I wish this was the home I was part of. These would be huge, huge blessings. And now as we begin to put it all together, you see that the blessings are equally dependent on the Lord because they come from something that was his gift. Do you follow the, the, the train of thought? He wouldn't have these blessings if the Lord hadn't given him these children. He would have nothing, no security. And so his entire life, everything is seen as being ultimately and foundationally dependent on God. We're dependent on the Lord for everything. Now, What's the application? I see three things. Number one, it is God's choice to give us anything. Notice I didn't make it anything, one word. Anything. Anything you have, ultimately, is from the Lord. Anything. We can work as hard as we want to. We can try as much as we can to make life work on our own. But in the end... Every single thing we have is a gift from God, whether we're talking about our family or our job, our bank accounts, our health, our life, our security, our salvation, fill in the blank. All of it is a gift from him. The fact that anything happens to us at all is proof that God is in it. It shows us that he's sovereign over everything that occurs. And when you realize that it's God's choice to give us anything, that truth should make us humble. Understanding that we're not our own. And none of the things that we've been given are our own. The house you have, you didn't earn. The wife or husband you married, you didn't deserve. The children you have, you didn't produce. Everything from the food you eat, the clothes you wear, the car you drove here in this morning, all of it is from him. That's it. And that truth should humble us and make us remember that we are nothing but recipients. That's it. Number two, it is our privilege then to be recipients of God's blessings because God doesn't have to give us those things, does he? He didn't have to give us our families, our husband, our wife, our kids. He didn't have to give us a home, a car, food to eat this morning, a safety, security, health. He, he didn't owe us any of those things, and yet we have them. Why? Have you ever thought about this? Why do we have nothing, or something, excuse me, instead of nothing? Because nothing is what we deserve. Why does God feed people who hate him? Why does he provide for those who rebel against him? Why does he forgive people who are his enemies? Why does he care for those who reject him? He does it because he's our maker, and despite our sinfulness, he loves us. And it's our privilege, particularly for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ and have been forgiven of our sins, to let him care for our needs. It's a privilege. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. I, I don't know when these words hit me like they did. I've never been able to get away from them. And, and when I, once I became a, a parent, they meant even more. 
But in Matthew 7, Jesus asks this question, or says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? And, and I just read that to you and ask this question, do you really understand Jesus' point here? I mean, is it clear? He's talking about all of us sinful parents in the room. We're his example. Okay? If you're a mom or dad, listen up. He's, he's using you. Here we are, we worry, and we strive, and we're filled with anxiety about this, and we're working hard about that, and we're worried about college and, and, and braces and this or that or whatever else. We've got all these things in our mind, everything you can think of. And Jesus' response to all of those things is simply, ask. That's it. Ask. And we sit there because we're grown-ups and we know better. And we think, it's not that simple. It, it, it can't be that simple. And so knowing our thoughts, Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter. He says, Mom, Dad, listen, hey, which one of you, if your kid said, hey, Mom, I'm hungry, can I have a piece of bread? We'll throw him a rock. Hey, Dad, can you make some fish sticks? Here, have a rattlesnake. Which one of your parents would do it? And parents, you know, we're sitting there thinking, well, none of us would. The thought of treating our children like that, it's it's repugnant to us. And so Jesus goes in for the kill. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? I mean, if it's repugnant to you, you sinful, wicked person, then wouldn't our holy, righteous, loving, omnipotent Father do far, far better than you ever will? It's incredibly convicting to me to read those words because the Lord meets our needs and it is our privilege to be the recipients of those blessings. And if the first application should make us humble, then this application should make us what? Thankful. Thankful that we get to be the recipients of all of these blessings from His good hand that leads us to gratefulness. Number three, it's our responsibility to wisely use what God has given us. Because whether it's building a house or or watching a city or having kids or anything else you can think of, we still have to do our part. None of those things just happen on their own. They all require work. The point of the author is, is that all of our work All of our life really should be lived wholly in dependence on God. Otherwise, it's vain, it's pointless, it's worthless, it's empty. Nothing will come from it. The first one encouraged us to be humble. The second one said we should made us be thankful. This one encourages us to be faithful, good stewards of the gifts that God has given us. In um, 1876, Jean Sophia Piggott penned the words to a hymn that I'm guessing... Very few people in this room know, just because of our our age and our uh, generation. But the hymn was called, Jesus, I Am Resting, Resting. I never never grew up singing this hymn. I didn't know anything about it until I met Jamie. 
And Jamie's church sang it when she was growing up, and she really, really liked this particular hymn. And so I learned it because of her. Well, this hymn became sort of a theme song for one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen, a man named Hudson Taylor. Taylor uh, was a missionary to China who was revolutionary in his time. He actually went to this country and dressed like the locals and talked like the locals and act like the locals so that he could reach them for Christ. And he ended up founding something called the China Inland Mission, which was an attempt to get hundreds of people to go be missionaries into inland China. And over, uh, and that was started in 1865. Over the next 35, 40 years, he did. He sent hundreds of missionaries throughout inland China preaching the gospel. Well, in 1900, he had been ill. He, was, he died in 1905, I think. He had been ill, and so he was in Switzerland recuperating. And it was about that time that the very first reports of the Boxer Rebellion reached his ears. Now, if you're not up to date on British colonial history in the Far East, let me quickly give you a history lesson in what the Boxer Rebellion was all about. The Boxer Rebellion was an uprising in China by Chinese nationalists against foreign imperialism. The British were there, other nations were there, they were preaching Christianity, and some of the Chinese began to feel that all of these outside influences were a threat against what it was to be Chinese. And so they rose up and began to massacre tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people across the country. At least 30,000 Chinese Christians were killed, Chinese who had converted to Christianity, But they didn't just target their own people, they targeted foreigners particularly because they were the sources of this. And so these China Inland Mission missionaries were all from England and the general area of the UK and Europe. And so they were targeted and in 1900, 58 adults and 21 kids, all missionaries for the China Inland Mission were massacred there in China. When Hudson in Switzerland heard the news of the first killings, he wrote this, he wrote... I cannot read, I cannot pray, I can scarcely even think, but I can trust. And as report after report of the killings kept coming into him, it's reported that he sat at his desk singing the words to that hymn that he loves so much, the first two stanzas of which I'll put up behind me. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Simply trusting thee, Lord Jesus, I behold thee as thou art. And thy love, so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart. You see, at that moment, there was nothing else Taylor could do, right? He was powerless. Only thing he could do was be dependent on the Lord. He couldn't just magically get from Switzerland and China in time to do anything. He couldn't walk in and reason with the rebels and try to stop them from the massacre. He couldn't go and die in the place of all these men, women, and children whom he had personally sent to China so that they could preach the gospel. He he could do nothing. He was powerless. And so for him, in this instance, to be dependent on God, well, that, that was the only choice he had. And I'm not picking on him for that. Please don't misunderstand me. It was the right choice. He needed to be dependent on God at that moment. There was nothing else he could do but rest in him. Well... We are dependent on the Lord in these kinds of moments. But what the psalmist is reminding us is that those aren't the only moments where we need to be dependent on the Lord. We're not simply dependent on him when we feel powerless. We're dependent on him right now. No matter what situation you're thinking about, what decision is in front of you, what 
opportunity or obstacle lays ahead, whether it's as simple as picking where you're going to eat lunch today. You and I are dependent on the Lord in everything. Jesus said it best of all. He says, without me, you can do what? Nothing. And the question is, do you really believe that? Or was Jesus just lying to you? Do you really believe that when he says, without me, you can do nothing, that he's genuinely telling you the truth? Well, according to the psalmist here, according to Psalm 127, the way you answer that question, whether or not you really believe that apart from Jesus, you, you can do nothing, the answer to that question determines whether or not we will live a pointless life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we see very clearly here that apart from you, we can do nothing. Unless you preach this sermon, I preached in vain. Unless you drive us home after this, we drive home in vain. Unless you take this next breath for us, we take it in vain. You sustain us and uphold us in everything we do. And apart from you, we have nothing. Lord, that doesn't lead us to despair. That doesn't lead us to laziness. It leads us to humility. To remember who we are before you. That we're nothing. We have nothing. We deserve nothing. You are so good to us. And it is our privilege to receive the many, many blessings you give to us. You you send rain on the just and the unjust. You love us. I don't know why. But I'm thankful. I'm thankful for all the blessings you've given me. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my wife and my children. I'm thankful for all the provision you've made for us. I'm thankful for a full stomach and for a dry bed. Lord, I'm thankful for it all right now. But you know, Lord, it's easy to be thankful and realize who we are in these moments. Help us, Lord, to be thankful all the time. To not dismiss your good gifts, wishing for others. To not long for the things we don't have to not in our foolishness think that we somehow are the master of our own fates or not. We are dependent on you. And I pray, Lord, that as we realize this and are reminded of these truths, that you will help us to be good stewards of them, to use them how you designed, to use them for your glory, for our good, our enjoyment. You've given us so many wonderful things. Lord, help us to remember that apart from you, we can do nothing. Don't, don't, Lord, allow our sinful hearts to think that the only time we're dependent on you is when we're powerless to help, powerless to act. Lord, we're always, always dependent. So I love you, Lord, and I'm thankful that you've allowed us to gather together today around your word. I pray that your spirit will take it and use it as only you know how in each and every heart in this room this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.